When someone tells you to consult mediums and spirits who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and, looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoiced when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The second reading is Luke 1, 67-75. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, we are diving into our Christmas series because if you didn't notice, Christmas is almost upon us, yes? Yes, I don't know how you feel about that, but Christmas is a time where people often will trot out their favourite movies. You know, you have your Christmas movies, don't you? Uh, and uh, if you're maybe a little bit older, uh, maybe, maybe this is your Christmas movie. You know, it's a wonderful life. You know, it's that heartwarming story. People like that one. There's a whole generation out there going, I've never even heard about that. Or maybe, maybe you're a little bit more, this one keeps on getting redone. A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens comes along. And if you're really of that younger generation, but even now they view this as retro, the ultimate Christmas movie, which is Die Hard, yes. Uh, For some of you, I don't know why it's Christmas. It just happens at Christmas. Anyway, I'd I'd like to make a case for a different Christmas movie that I think is the one that should replace every other Christmas movie that is out there. And that Christmas movie that I'd like to commend to you is Star Wars. Okay? 
Let me explain to you why Star Wars has something to do with Christmas. Okay, I'm talking about episode four. I'm talking about a new hope. You know, the real Star Wars, the one that some of us like me were old enough to see in the cinemas when it came out the first time, not just the second time, but also the first time. Okay, it's my claim to, my claim to fame. But what is the story of Star Wars? Sorry, it was released in 1977. There are spoilers in this bit. If you haven't seen it, sucked in. I'm going to tell you what it's all about. Okay? It's a rebellion against tyranny. It is a really small group of people who are fighting the evil of the galactic empire. The minute rebellion conquers the monstrous opposition. That's what Christmas is about, isn't it? Let me unpack that for you. I'd like to suggest, at its heart, Christmas is about that. We can sometimes, I think, limit Christmas. We romanticise it, we dress it up, we make it look nice and fancy, we put soft lenses on it, we have all emotional stuff, you know, uh, you pull out the old record of your school choir or something singing Christmas carols, you've got all those little traditions that you do just to get the, the feeling back. Nothing wrong with that, if you want to do that, that's okay, but I think sometimes we can romanticise what Christmas is about, or we can just individualise it. And it just becomes about us. And we see that the birth of the Saviour is just about, it's about me and Jesus. It's about me and God. We limit it down and it just has an individual focus. And sometimes we can spiritualise it. And we just say, Jesus coming to earth is just about him taking us to be with him in heaven. And we see that that spiritual dimension, a very real dimension, can I say, we limit Christmas down to that. Because I'd like to suggest that this incredibly powerful and famous passage that Lara just read to us from Isaiah 9, it tells us about the birth of the child. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the gospel writers make it clear that that son is the Lord Jesus Christ. But we read, didn't we? As in the day of Midian's defeat, so he will break the yoke of the oppressor. Salvation is more than just me and Jesus. Salvation is more about than just going to heaven. Jesus came to deliver from oppression. Let me unpack this. I've got four points. They're there on your notes. Number one, a cry for deliverance. Number two, the search for a deliverer. Number three, the gift of the deliverer. And number four, living delivered, which probably grammatically isn't correct, but you can work with that. Okay, the cry for deliverance. Now, if you've seen oppression, it's ugly, isn't it? Maybe you've experienced it firsthand. Maybe in a little way, maybe in a big way. It is ugly. There is fear that comes with that oppression. There is that sense of dread, that sense of threat, the fear of loss, whether actual or potential, that threat of harm 
or the enacting of harm, the exploitation that comes. Oppression is ugly and it takes many different forms. We all have a picture of it, don't we? Isaiah gives us an image. He gives us a visual of oppression. It's there at the end of chapter 8 in Isaiah. And he reads, let's read from verse 21. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. They will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. They will be thrust into utter darkness. It's a horrible image, isn't it? It's an image of despair, an image of, uh, of injustice. And at the time that this was written, it was back in 732 BC, a time in Israel's history where this prophecy that we see that was fulfilled in Christ was given to a nation that was under threat. King Ahaz was on the throne. He'd reigned for just one year and he'd inherited a crisis from his father. And so if you know anything, he ruled in Jerusalem over the kingdom of Judah. And uh, his northern neighbours wanted to replace him on the throne with a king that would do what they wanted. And so they decided they would get their army together and Israel and Aram to the north. Uh, Israel and Syria, they were coming down to depose Ahaz and to put their own puppet king in place. And not only was that happening, but some of the other neighbours were thinking, hey, this might be a good idea just to uh, exploit this opportunity. And so the Philistines to the west and the Edomites to the south decide that they're going to jump into this battle as well. And so you'd you excuse Judah for feeling a little bit stressed at this point. Yes? Okay, a little bit oppressed. They are under attack from three sides and the only reason I think they weren't under attack from four is because the fourth border was the Dead Sea. A uh, bit hard to get across that, so uh, north, south and west, they are under oppression. Is it any different for us? Well, yes. Yes, obviously, we're not under attack as a nation. Yes, the bushfires give us that sense of something's happening, but it's not like we're being invaded from Tasmania to the south, New Zealand across to the east and Papua New Guinea to the north. Uh, We're not under threat in the same way, but oppression is alive and well in Australia, isn't it? Yes. We wield power against each other. Some of us experience that in very real ways. There is the oppression of domestic violence the oppression of unjust employment, of conditions that exploit uh, people in vulnerable situations. There is the exclusion and the vilification that is alive and well within our culture. If you've been following the news over the last couple of years, you'll know that the culture wars are alive and well and everyone is either a victim or a perpetrator and oppression is spoken of and both the victims and the perpetrators try and claim that they are oppressed there is this sense that everyone is oppressed 
And we feel it, don't we? We feel it. Think about the rhetoric that went on in our political system, our wonderfully safe, free, democratic political system. The language that was there, that if you didn't like who someone was voting for, the way that that was spoken of. And then would you dare to say, well, I voted for them too. Not so much here, but across in the States, uh, and I'm not saying I agree with this particular person's politics, uh, but I understand that families have divided because one member of that family voted for Donald Trump. The fear of oppression and exclusion is very real. So what does 732 and 2019 have in common? Almost 3,000 years apart. Well, I would like to suggest both the political and military turmoil and maybe the social turmoil of today have underneath them a common cause. They are symptomatic of a deeper issue. And that deeper issue is human sin. The fact that we have turned our back on God, the fact that we have walked away, that we don't want to live his way, we don't want to acknowledge that he is God. Paul says it like this, the Apostle Paul, one of the messengers of the early church, he says it like this in Colossians chapter 1. He speaks of us living in what he calls the dominion or the kingdom of darkness. That we live being reigned over by someone in the kingdom of darkness. Jesus said it, that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We are enslaved, we are oppressed because everyone sins, don't we? Everyone sins. Sin underlies these issues, whether it's domestic, whether it's communal, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's on the international political stage. Sin underlies these issues and sin enslaves and sin oppresses. So it's natural as we experience this that we look for the deliverer. So who, who did Ahaz look for? So back in 732, the prophet Isaiah went up to King Ahaz and he said these words. He says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. He pointed him to God and his faithfulness. Okay, Ahaz has the advantage of having the prophet speak God's words directly to him. You think, oh, okay, obviously Ahaz is telling him it's going to be okay. Just trust God. So what does Ahaz do? Well, we read about that in 2 Kings, chapter 16. Ahaz sent messages to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. Do you see the irony in this? In an attempt to preserve his freedom. What does he do? I am your servant and vassal. 
So to preserve his freedom, he makes himself a slave. And to stop Israel and Aram to come in from coming in and plundering his kingdom, what does he do? He takes the silver and the gold from the temple, from the palace, and he gives it to the king of Assyria. Ahaz just merely swaps one group of oppressors for another, one group of plunderers for another. He gets rid of Aram and Israel because Assyria takes care of those. But then Assyria comes in and enslaves Judah. He accepts the brutal yoke of the empire. What about us? Can I suggest we so often do the same? We swap one oppressor for another. Not always, but so often. In the name of freedom, we oppress those that we consider to be oppressors. We create new victims. All we do is we switch seats. So much of our activism is not about justice. It is about justice, but it's not just about justice. It's about retribution. And as they have oppressed me, or they have oppressed my group, so therefore we must oppress them. And it's right and it's just and it's fair that we do that. And so you might feel that. Some of us who live and work in certain situations, particularly if you're in the university worlds, you'll know that this is alive and well. You'll know what this is like. Uh, I've said it before. I represent everything that certain people think is wrong with this society. White, middle class, educated, heterosexual, etc., etc., etc. We look at our society and we seek to turn things over, but all we do is we switch seats and we just put different people on the top. We put the boot on the other foot and good intentions go bad. You see it. You see nations that have thrown off or been liberated from colonial oppression only to then turn on the minorities within their their groups. Look at Myanmar, okay? British colony, freed, now exploiting and persecuting those who live within their borders. Oppression, the oppressed become oppressors. There's got to be something bigger. There's got to be a better way. Because as we just deal with the things on the surface, as we just deal with the symptoms, we never actually deal with the, the disease itself. Because sin works itself out through social structures. We want to just pretend that if we just get the right social structure, that'll make it okay. We just want to pretend that if we have the right political leadership, that'll make it okay. That if we have the right gender balances within our boards and our groups, that'll make it okay. Can I say, all of those things are good. I'm not having a go at them. But what they do is they just shuffle things around. They never deal with the issue at the core because our society doesn't want to face that the issue is fundamentally one that is spiritual. The issues in our family, the issue in our communities, the workplaces, the politics. Yes, there are social issues. Yes, there are political issues. But first and foremost, God's word tells us that these are spiritual issues. 
that they are symptoms of a deeper alienation. And we go and run after false messiahs. We look for other things to save us. But it's the same as it was for Ahaz and for Judah. If we do not stand firm in our faith, we will not stand at all. Which brings us to Christmas. The gift of the deliverer. We hear of the oppression, the darkness and the gloom, the distress. But what does Isaiah promise? What does God's word bring us, this promise? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light have dawned. Now the light represents God's presence. And light represents God's salvation. The coming of that light onto the people who are oppressed. And we read this, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered, you being God, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. Now, I don't know if you remember Gideon. If you did Sunday school, you probably remember the story. Okay, uh, the Midianites were oppressing Israel back in the time of the judges. So before King David, before the rise of the, the Israelite empire, okay, you had the judges ruling over the tribes. And uh, the Midianites, the neighbours, had come in and they were picking on and making life really, really tough for God's people. And so God raises up Gideon. And now Gideon's not exactly what you'd call the fine, moral, upstanding individual. He's a little bit of an ambiguous figure who likes testing gods with fleece and all that kind of stuff. You can read the story in the book of Judges. But you might remember, he, he sends out the call to muster the army. And if my memory's right, 32,000 men answer his call. Okay, so he's got a big army. And do you remember what God does? He says, nah, too many. <laughs> Too many. And so I think uh, anyone who's scared can go home. And I think 10,000 at that point go home. Okay. No, still got too many. So he does this thing with drinking, uh, you know, whether you lap like a dog or you pick up the, uh, the water on your hands. And he cuts down the army to 300 against the horde of Midian. And through Gideon, he delivers his people. He does an incredible act of salvation and he grants them 40 years of peace Midian was subdued before the Israelites and it did not raise its head again during Gideon's lifetime the land had peace for 40 years but if you know the cycle of judges Gideon dies Israel forgets and the whole thing happens again but that's not what God promises through Isaiah he promises that the day of Midian, the breaking of the yoke, the rod of the oppressor being taken away, would not just be a temporary deliverance like in Gideon's time, but it would be something that lasts. Every warrior's boot used in battle, this is verse 5, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Why? Because you don't need them anymore. Because the time when you need to fight for freedom has gone. Because God has come and delivered his people once for all. 
There is freedom. There is an end to warfare. There is an end to oppression. And the rule of the Prince of Peace. How is this going to come about? Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. The lethal weapon that is the newborn baby. Gideon, his army of 300, God used to conquer the hordes of Midian. Jesus, newborn, is the Prince of Peace through whom God will break the oppressor's yoke, through whom God will deliver his people from the rod of oppression. Jesus, when he starts his ministry, he picks up the book of Isaiah a little bit later on and he reads these words. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to, pre- to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. The Lord Jesus, born in the shed, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, he claims the mission. I am here to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to recover the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now, if you're anything like me, you've probably grown up hearing this and going, yeah, but he's just talking about sin. He's just talking about the spiritual reality. But you might remember that I challenge you that perhaps we limit the implications. Perhaps, yes, it's primarily about sin, but it's not only about sin. Yes, it's about setting us right with God, but that then overflows to other things, to other relationships that is there. That Jesus came to liberate us from the oppression, the primary oppression of sin and death and evil. But it's not just about setting us right with God. Because as he does that, that impacts everything else. So how does he do it? He does it in a surprising manner that will be very familiar to pretty much everyone here. He does it. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes and stands with the oppressed. We read this a little bit later in Isaiah. Isaiah 53 verse 8. Speaking of the servant of the Lord, which is Jesus. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts of Jesus's trial, it is the most brutal travesty of justice. The judge stands up and says, he's done nothing wrong. He gets tried by the mob and executed for expedience. But Christ did not just die with us. He died for us. And that is what we celebrate. That he, for the transgressions of my people, for God's people, he was punished. He came and lived and died and rose that we might be liberated. 
He was oppressed that we might be freed. That is what we celebrate. That is what we celebrate. So if we don't just live in the spiritual, individual zone, if we actually see that Christmas is about the birth of the deliverer, and that has implications for us before God, but also for us with one another, how does that work? Well, let me tell you, the first and ultimate deliverance is the deliverance from sin that comes through what Christ did for us on the cross. That must be first. And as a people who work for deliverance, we want to see people come and put their trust in God through Christ to be delivered from the oppression of sin and death. Otherwise, all we're doing as we deal with issues in our communities, as we're dealing with issues that are before us, we're just shuffling the chairs. We're not changing the issue. Jesus is about delivering us, as Paul said in Colossians 1, from the kingdom of darkness and to bring us into the kingdom of the one he loves. It's from a transfer of from oppression to liberty. The kingdom of the son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We must hold that first. But can I suggest this Christmas that we broaden our understanding of what Christ came to do. Because one of the great critics of Christianity, a guy called Karl Marx, you might have heard him, um, he said his, his critique of all religion, really, is that it's, it's the opium of the people. It just numbs you. It makes you okay with being ripped off and oppressed because when you go to God, you get to heaven and it's all better again. So therefore, we don't care about injustice. But I think Jesus cared about injustice. I think Jesus saw that there was a radical oppression happening with Israel and he challenged that. And I think as his people, we have our part to play. And I think as we think about what difference we could make, when I thought about it during the week, I thought, I think we should be optimistic realists. Let me unpack this. We should be realists because... We recognise that to fight injustice in whatever form is to fight against the grain of human sin. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we have a bent in us. Someone talked about humanity being carved out of twisted wood. We have a bent in us that takes us away from God and his intentions. And so as we stand and we, impose, we oppose injustice, we are working against the grain of sin. So we will never see a resolution to some of the problems. Does it mean we don't work? No, it doesn't. But what does Jesus say? He says about one of the great injustices, economic injustice, he says, the poor you will always have with you. Does he say, therefore, don't care about them? Don't work for them? Don't seek to liberate them from poverty? No, he doesn't say that. But he says, recognise the poor you will always have with you. We must be realists. But having said that, my natural tendency is to be a bit pessimistic. And I think I've been a little bit rebuked this week. Because I think we should be optimistic. Because, yes, we are working against the grain of human sin, but we are working with the grain 
of our great God of justice. And he has promised that he will set all things right, that through the Lord Jesus who we celebrate this Christmas, the birth of the Deliverer, he will set up a kingdom where justice will reign. We read this. The greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. That peace is not just an absence of warfare. It is wholeness. It is perfect abundance. It is life as we were designed to have it. Life in Eden, but better than Eden. Because Christ has come and through him, we have life that can never be taken. That is there. The life that comes when Christ comes in his fullness. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establish and upholding it from that time forever with justice and righteousness. We are working with the grain. As we as the delivered work to bring deliverance to others, we can do that in the promise that God will set all things straight. We have not only the king, but he gets four titles. You might remember them. This child, he's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I just want to unpack Wonderful Counselor really briefly here at the end. Because I think through the gospel, the Lord Jesus gives us the key. Because if we go out there in his name as so many have done before, and seek to set the things right by fighting with the weapons of this world, we will do what they have done before and replace one form of oppression with another. He teaches us through the gospel that the way to bring true freedom comes first by being reconciled with the Father, but then by going out in the spirit of the gospel. We recognise that as we set to set things right, we also need to be set right. That while we may see victims, we also are oppressors. And that we can offer forgiveness as we ourselves have been offered forgiveness. We can go out not with the self-righteousness of the crowd, setting to, seeking to set them right, We can go out with humility and gentleness and steadfastness and perseverance and seek to see shalom, God's wholeness, realised. We can see Christ proclaimed. We can see people come to him. And then we can work to see society reflect just a little bit of what will come in fullness. We can work for justice without a need for retribution. We can work, it's not about validating ourselves, making ourselves feel good, because in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. We have the ultimate privilege of being his children. We don't need to prove anything. We don't need to win. And so we can go with grace and humility. We know that God will set all things straight. And so I'd like to suggest this Christmas 
that you see that Christmas is so much broader, that Christmas impacts the way you think about that community around you, the way you think about that family in front of you, that workplace that you go to. Christmas overflows and the Prince of Peace has come to break the yoke of oppression and to set the captive free. And on the cross, he did that. As he died, so my sins, so your sins could be forgiven. As he rose again, so that we might have life in his name. But it doesn't end there. It starts there. And we go in his name and live as his delivered people. Speaking of his deliverance available to all and working to see that realised within our community. Let's pray. Father, this is a huge thing. The birth of a small child in an insignificant town in a corner of the Roman Empire. Lord, but promised almost 750 years earlier as the one who would break the oppressor, who would free the captives, who would liberate the prisoners. And Lord, through the cross, you did that. You broke the power of sin and death and evil. You set us free. And Lord, for those who have accepted that, we praise you. But we ask, Lord, that you would stir us, that we would be both speaking of the grace and freedom that is available to all through Christ, but also working in his name to see just a shadow of your purposes uh, that will be fulfilled perfectly in Christ. Lord, we ask that you would grant us hearts that ache for the justice, the, re- the righteousness of the kingdom to be fully realised and that we would not turn a blind eye. And in Christ's name we ask this. Amen.